You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. We reached a really strange turning point as a species. For thousands of years, the threat of starvation has guided the actions of our ancestors, and the lack of food has been a major cause of dysfunction and death within our society. But today we're experiencing a phenomenon where this whole paradigm has been turned on its head. Today, more people are dying from overconsumption than from starvation. All the way back in 2012, researchers at Harvard published a study titled The Hunger Obesity Paradox, Obesity and the Homeless. The study revealed that although historically homeless populations living in extreme poverty are stereotypically thought of as underweight, the startling reality is that obesity has skyrocketed even in homeless populations. Their analysis found that approximately one-third of homeless individuals in the United States are clinically obese. Over 32% of the homeless population was shown to be obese, while only a little more than 1% of homeless individuals were actually found to be underweight. The researchers found that the obesity rate in the homeless was identical to the rest of the general population. Obesity amongst the homeless was 32.3%, while obesity among the general population was 33.7%. Now keep in mind that this was over a decade ago. The obesity rate here in the United States in the general population is now up over 40%. And of course, obesity in the homeless has risen right along with it. Today, over 70% of United States citizens are either overweight or obese. Even without a lot of money or resources, our society has now made it easy to be overweight. Our society has made it easy to be obese. Our society has made it easy to have a chronic lifestyle-related disease. According to the CDC, six out of 10 Americans now have at least one chronic disease. And over 40% of our citizens have two or more chronic diseases. And this is according to the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA. These researchers found that poor diet is the leading contributor to our epidemics of obesity and chronic lifestyle-related diseases. Now, again, this is a paradox that we're living in. We often have these visions of people in abject poverty who are struggling to find food to eat. And this has historically been true. But today, that whole paradigm has been shifted. Now, even without a lot of money, even without resources, we can still find a way through the consumption of readily available ultra-processed foods and their related obesogens to find our way into obesity and disease and dysfunction. We've normalized these things. And now on this episode, we're going to really deconstruct what's going on with our food that is creating such a ravenous hunger in our species, that's creating so much overconsumption, in particular, of these highly refined ultra-processed foods. And I think this episode is absolutely going to blow your mind. And most importantly, it's going to enlighten you as to what's going on biochemically within our own bodies so we can take back control and be empowered in this very strange society. Because right now, if you're healthy, you're weird. All right? The norm is to be unhealthy. And so I want you to be in that guild and be in that number of growing populations of people who are taking control of their health and shifting these ratios. We've seen skyrocketing rates of chronic disease long enough, and we can turn this around. Now, being that food is a huge contributor to the obesity epidemic, obviously, 
food is a solution as well. But it's shifting over from, according to the BMJ right now, about 60% of the average American's diet is ultra processed foods. So shifting that ratio where we're including more whole, real, nutrient-dense foods that our genes as a human species have been interacting with for countless eons, right? We evolved eating real foods. And so making a shift in those things. And in fact, we can actually alter, as we're going to talk much more about today, alter what's happening with our biochemistry with very specific phytonutrients that have a huge role to play when we're talking about our hunger and cravings. As a matter of fact, there's one specific nutrient that's been found to help us to shift our desire away from these ultra-processed foods. A study published in the peer-reviewed journal Appetite found that chlorophyll, that's right, chlorophyll, the green blood of plants, all right, that green pigment that gives certain plants their color. These researchers found that, again, this was published in the journal Appetite, that chlorophyll can assist in weight loss and reduce the urge to eat ultra-processed foods, reduce the urge to eat hyper-palatable foods that actually trick our palate and drive us to eat more and more and more of these foods. Now, chlorophyll, obviously, we can go and make a shift in including more green leafy vegetables in our nutrition protocol. But for years, my family and I, one of the things that we do is we eat foods that are super concentrated in chlorophyll and under the umbrella of these well-noted superfoods. And I don't use that word lightly. That word gets tossed around in our society today. But truly, for thousands of years, foods like spirulina has been a major protein source of ancient cultures of humans, really to help them to survive and not just survive, but to thrive as a species. So like the ancient Aztecs and even in Africa, in the country of Chad, the list goes on and on. But now today, NASA, literal rocket scientists have been studying spirulina for use with their astronauts because it's so nutrient dense. In addition to that, spirulina's cousin chlorella, and it even gets its name from its chlorophyll content. Chlorella actually contains nutrients like lutein and zeaxanthin. These are two carotenoids that are proven to protect your eyes and lower the risk of macular degeneration. And eye health is a huge concern today because of these screens. We're constantly staring at this fixed medium and we're seeing this increase, obvious increase in lifestyle related vision issues. And so this is another protective factor that you can add into your family's protocol. In addition to that, you know, heart disease obviously is the number one killer in the United States and has been for many years. A double-blind placebo-controlled study published in Clinical Experimental Hypertension found that chlorella has been able to normalize blood pressure in test subjects with clinically diagnosed hypertension. We get chlorella, spirulina, ashwagandha, all together and many other superfoods in the Organifi green juice formula. Go to Organifi.com forward slash model. It's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash model. You get 20% off their incredible green juice formula. It's a low temperature process, all organic and all good. All right, this is a big part of our family's protocol, and I highly recommend you check them out. Organifi's green juice and the red juice formula is amazing as well. Check them out. Go to Organifi.com forward slash model. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week five-star review titled She Got Them Yams by Tiffany Bond. Movement is medicine. I'm a vinyasa flow and Buddha yoga instructor and sweating and moving is life. 
However, when you're not recovering and fueling properly, especially passing that 40 plus mark, injuries and anxiety will occur. I'm so grateful for Sean, his books and his podcast. This episode especially helped confirm some of the errors I've been allowing and taught me ways to correct them. If you ain't listening to Sean, you ain't doing it right. Keep up the love and knowledge. You are changing lives. Thank you so much for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. It truly means the world. And this is referring to the episode that we did with superstar personal trainer, Don Saladino. Actually, Don just shared, he just posted, he's working out with his client, Ryan Reynolds, getting him in shape for Deadpool 3. So Don definitely knows a thing or 20 about fitness. But on that episode, we talked about them yams. All right, We talked about glute building. We talked about all manner of fitness, but really just how to do stuff the right way with efficacy and intelligence. And that's what really what we provide here on the Model Health Show with these world-class guests. And I'm telling you today, this episode is no exception. We've got one of my favorite people in the health and wellness space, Dr. Amy Shaw. Amy Shaw, MD, is a double board certified medical doctor and nutrition expert with training from Cornell, Columbia, and Harvard Universities. Drawing from her background in internal medicine and immunology, as well as her own personal wellness journey, she's dedicated her practice to helping her patients feel better and live healthier through her integrative and holistic approach to wellness. She's a best-selling author and has been featured on a wide variety of major news networks and television shows, and now she's back here on the Model Health Show. Let's dive into this conversation with the one and only Dr. Amy Shaw. We got my friend, Dr. Amy Shaw, back in the studio with us. So honored. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. Thank yeah. you for coming by. I absolutely love your new book. And this is a topic that we both collectively are passionate about. Yes. Because in truth, our genes as a species have not changed much in the last few hundred years, but our hunger and our consumption of food definitely has. Let's start by talking about why our appetite and our rates of hunger have increased so much in recent years? Surprisingly, you'll be surprised at the answer. And I think you won't be, but some people will be. The same reasons that we're getting hungrier is the same reasons we're getting sadder and we're getting fatter and we're getting sicker. And they're all connected because I think what we're doing is we're missing this big picture and we're concentrating on these individual factors. We're saying like, oh, how do we create a pill or a solution for obesity? How do we create a pill solution for you know, depression? But what about looking at it as the big picture? And I say big because it's brain, immune system, gut, like big picture. If we looked at it through that lens, we would understand that Food creates mood, food creates cravings, food creates inflammation, and we could start to change how we kind of view these disorders. It's almost linked as one. Yeah. Wow. Again, we don't usually think about that. We yeah. just get hungry and we go eat some stuff. Yeah, exactly. You know? But exactly. it's so much deeper than that. And actually in your book, you shared a study, and this was cited in the journal Cell Metabolism, demonstrating how, for example, ultra processed foods trigger us to crave them more and to specifically overeat. This is a landmark study. I mean, you, we always think that we should go with our intuition. We should just eat what we're craving or hungry for, right? That's the new anti-diet trend. But if you think about it in this study, what they said is, no, if you eat what you want and you're eating a standard American ultra-processed diet, 
you will eat 500 calories more than the unprocessed group and you will gain two pounds in two weeks with nothing else different except that you're eating ultra processed food. They found that there's this hormone called neuropeptide YY. It makes you feel satiated and full. And in the ultra processed food group, that hormone was lower. And ghrelin, our hunger hormone, was higher. So even though you're eating food that's matched in calories, matched in fat, in protein, in fiber, and in sugar, you are hungrier and you're less satisfied. That's bananas. Again, so they were essentially given the same array of caloric options, same ratios of macronutrients, but they were consistently eating about 500 more calories a day when they put them on the ultra processed food diet versus the whole foods diet. Yeah. Imagine this is the perfect study. So diet studies are so hard to do. They brought people in to the NIH and they actually had them stay there so they could monitor all their food for a two week period. And they basically had them do both ways. So they had them do an ultra processed two weeks and then a regular unprocessed two weeks to even say, hey, is there something different about the, the people themselves? They had them eat the same exact number of calories, fat, protein, fiber, sugar. And in the two groups, they were allowed to eat ad, so they call it like free snacks. So if you at, uh, you know, at any point in the day, you could ask for an extra snack if you'd like, but it has to be you know, if you're in the unprocessed group, it would grapes or some nuts. And if you were in the ultra processed group, it would be, you know, Cheez-Its or something similar like that, a packaged snack. And in two weeks, I mean, that's very little time, two weeks of monitoring two different groups of people. They saw that the ultra processed group was eating more consistently per day, per meal. They were asking for more snacks. They were less full. And shockingly to me, Sean, the blood sugar and the insulin and all the things that we would think would be really different weren't. And I thought that was shocking because it's basically saying that the gut bacteria, these, you know, the neuropeptide YY, the ghrelin, that's driving the difference between these two groups. So when they looked at the conclusions, they said, okay, what is the difference between the ultra processed food and the real unprocessed food? Because the sugar level stayed the same, the insulin, you know, they checked all these other parameters, but it was the gut hormones mm. that changed. And that to me is just more, it just puts so much more weight on the fact that mm. our gut bacteria are running the show when it comes to hunger and cravings. You put more weight. Yes. I heard that. I like that. I like that. So, you know, you talk about in the book, Hunger Hijackers. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those. I mean, we are a very different world than we were even 70 years ago, right? You can blame it on, you know, internet. You can blame it on Uber Eats if you want, or, you know, DoorDash. You can blame it on packaging of foods. You can blame it, but a lot has changed over the last 70 years. And What's happening is we're noticing that people have more hunger. People are less satisfied. That people have more cravings. So hunger and cravings are two different things, but both of them have gone up. Mm. And so we're seeing that you're eating more food 
you're undernourished and you're getting more depressed, but you're getting fatter. It's like obesity is on the rise, but you're undernourished and you're feeling sad. And if you think about it, when you think about it from the gut brain lens, it makes sense because those gut bacteria, they make dopamine, they make serotonin, they make peptides that make you hungry or or full. And so if you start to damage these by, you know, all the things that we're doing, but mostly food, you're going to see a change in how we feel. Yeah. And you talked about specifically, you called some of them out. Even talked about, for example, emulsifiers. Yeah, causing this disruption. So, if you think about how some of these food uh, products they increase the shelf life, they make it easy for us to, you know, ship something from California to Florida. Uh, you can't ship real food uh, from California to Florida without it spoiling, right? So you have to put things in it that increase the shelf stability. You have to put things in it so it doesn't separate. So emulsifiers, if you don't put emulsifiers in food, it will separate. Like a salad dressing. Yeah. It will like, you know, when you look at a natural salad dressing, it'll separate the water and the oil, right? Or for example, I have, um, you know, I make this chai tea just for, uh, with coconut milk. And what happens is people will say, hey, it doesn't mix that easy in water. You have to like really mix it. And I said, because we don't use emulsifiers. If you use these products, it makes it palatable, makes it easy, makes it convenient. So what's happened is in the search for the tastiest, most shelf-stable, most convenient and inexpensive foods, we have created hunger hijackers. Mm. And we didn't know, I mean, you can, it depends on if you believe in the conspiracy theory or not. And I'm not gonna, like, I'm not gonna say that I fully believe in that because I am on the medical side of things. And I don't think that there's doctors who are like, you know, getting together and willingly wanting to keep people sick. And so I don't think the food manufacturers per se are trying to keep us hungry, but they're keeping us hungry because that helps their bottom line. It is helpful to have foods that are tasty because you come back for more. When it creates a dopamine explosion in your brain, you're going to come back for more. Mm -hmm. A real food is like a dopamine spray, a water gun spray. An ultra processed food is a dopamine explosion. And so what we end up doing is we're teaching our kids that, hey, you can get a dopamine explosion from these and they unknowingly start to have more of them. And now 75% of adolescents eat ultra processed food as part of their, their main diet. So you look at a child adolescence diet and only 25% is real food. Everything else is ultra processed. It's insane. It's insane. But if you think about it, you can't blame these guys, right? Why wouldn't you want a dopamine explosion? Who wants a you know, who wants to eat a salad and maybe get a, a, a spray of Flimsy dopamine? little. Yeah. You know. It's like nothing. Going yeah. for a sunny walk, that's nothing compared to, you know, drinking alcohol or taking, eating one of these ultra processed snacks. So that's what we're up against. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It is kind of structured in a way that our biology is at war with our environment in a sense. It's hijacking our biology because we 
don't really understand our biology. And so part of the reason I wrote this book is that if we even understood how this all worked, then we could make changes. If we knew that the people who eat the most ultra-processed diets have 80% more mental health days, then maybe we make a change and start to get dopamine and start to get satisfaction and start to you know, do things that are going to move us in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. And just to pinpoint, you gave a great analogy when you talked about emulsifiers. And by the way, we're talking about synthetic yes. versions of, of emulsifiers. There are some naturally occurring emulsifiers, but in general, if we're making these ultra-processed foods generally, it's helping to keep the oils intact in the foods and also preventing things like separation. You gave an analogy of emulsifiers used in our laundry detergents, for example, mm -hmm. and it lifting off certain things that are not a part of the fabric, right? And the question is, and what you dive into is, what does that do to your gut lining? Yes. That's the thing is like, nobody is really researching and understanding how these food products are, you know, fabric softeners, these products that we use on a daily basis, how they're affecting us on the macro level. Like, how is that affecting our mood? How is that affecting our hunger levels? And what we're finding out is the same ultra processed foods, the same emulsifiers that are causing us to be hungry are also causing us to be sad, are also causing us to have heart disease and cancer and diabetes. It's all connected. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now I'm going to have to deconstruct your position because <laughs> you know, I know you know when you talked about, we don't know if it's on purpose, you talk about the bliss point yeah. in the book and these yeah. scientists are literally manufacturing, constructing these ultra-processed foods to affect our brains in a certain way. Let's talk about that. That is real. That's, that happens in food labs all over the country. I've seen it in, with my own eyes at Cornell. So I was a nutrition major, undergrad, before I went to medical school. And there's a lab that has electrodes. And they sit and they look at people eating foods. And they're engineering foods that create brain electrical impulses that light up all different parts of our brain, especially the dopamine centers, because the dopamine is the craving pathway, and we can get into that in a little bit. But they're able to make foods that are so, so good at lighting up all these pathways. No natural food could ever match that. And so if we think about that, it seems innocent, right? Oh yeah, they're just trying to make foods that are more palatable. They want to make more money. But when I realize 80% more mental health days with the people who eat these foods, I mean, more depression, more anxiety, more feeling down when you're eating more of these foods. I mean, shouldn't we look at what we're doing here? Wow, this is nuts. Yeah. What's really remarkable about this bliss point phenomenon is the fact that, like you just said, it's these kind of intense flavors and combinations that incite these reward pathways. But be our biology is also very intelligent, but they found a way to hijack that because our biology with anything intense like that, it's gonna shut down desire and craving to yeah. eat more. So they found this specific point where it takes you there, like right to the depth. Yeah but you don't go past it. And so you just keep staying in that kind of bliss point zone and yeah. eat more and more and more. So our biology is so smart. 
They want us to pursue things over and over and over again. They want us to work hard to build houses, to uh, you know provide for our community, to have relationships. All these things are through our reward pathway. So, for example, when you forage for food, you know thousands of years ago, you find a beautiful tree full of fruit, you get a reward, a dopamine reward. But there's a little bit of discomfort at the end. It's like you're rewarded, but then you have this feeling you got to do it again. And it's so smart. It keeps us going. The next day, you're going to forage for more food, for better food. For, and it's how we keep evolving, how we keep going and providing for our families. And it's super smart, right? But then you take it to modern times and there's a, you know, Oreo or let's take, you know, any kind of processed version. And it is creating that kind of dopamine release. And now we're craving more. Now we want more of that. And that's gambling. That's porn. That's alcohol. That's Instagram. That's video games. They all have figured out this pathway that we have never been told about. Before I read the research on how these pathways intricately, like how they're really working, I thought, why doesn't everyone know this? So that we can be better advocates for ourselves. So we can save ourselves from these addictions, from these terrible cravings. If we really understood how it worked, then we'd say, oh, that's what's happening. That's why when I crave something so bad, it's like I get it and then I feel really good, but then it's kind of uncomfortable. Like that's the dopamine pathway working. Yeah, I love this because a big part of what we do is, is shining a light inward. So we actually know what's happening with our minds and bodies is very empowering. It's, it's obviously the first step is awareness. So you mentioned Oreos just now. You talk about Oreos in the book, a specific study of mice given the opportunity to have Oreos or cocaine. Yeah. And they were going for the cookies. Yeah, it was, it was a, you know, very sensationalized in the media. I don't know if you remember when, I remember when it was such, you know, people were like, Oreos are more addictive than cocaine. And I think what people didn't understand and they still don't understand is that there are opiate receptors in our brain that get activated with food. That what I didn't know before I got into this research is that there are gut bacteria that can produce this opiate-like substances to help you eat certain foods. They steer you towards certain foods. They make you eat more of what they love so they can help you in this process of kind of saving yourself from these addictions. So if we knew that, we would do a better job of saving that gut bacteria because they're actually creating opiate-like receptors. They're creating dopamine that is 10 to 100 times stronger than our own dopamine. Serotonin, GABA, I mean, these guys are literally producing happiness chemicals for our brain. They're telling our brain what to eat, what not to eat. So the way you're feeling right now, the things you want, your mental state right now is actually coming from there, not from here. Yeah. I think we're looking at this, the average person is looking at this through the lens of logic. And they're like, well, you know, cocaine versus cookies. Like nobody, these little mice aren't trying to do sexual favors to get some Oreos, you know, they're not out here selling their bodies to get Oreos. Right. Humans wouldn't do the same thing. But culturally, if we're talking about cocaine versus Oreos, Oreos are massively socially acceptable. Right. Very easily accessible as well. Yeah. So acceptable, accessible, 
and you know it's um <laughs> if we're talking about stigma as well around yeah. you know something like cocaine yeah. and all of these things start to create this mental template about what we would go for right you know and you know we're talking about we're kind of leaning into a subject of like food addiction which isn't yeah. necessarily you know the the topic we're trying to deconstruct but if we're in a state where we're eating like as you mentioned, 75% ultra processed foods, if we're talking about children yeah. and adults are somewhere in that ballpark, 60, 60, yeah. 60 to 75% as well. Are we not addicted? Yeah, we are. It's like functioning alcoholics, right? Mm. So the way I think about food these days is how cigarettes used to be, right? We kind of knew they were a little bit bad for us, but it was socially accepted and everywhere you go, people were smoking. It was the socially accepted addiction. And I think what's happening right now is we're realizing, whoa, the body of evidence is telling us that ultra processed foods are going to kill us earlier. I mean, there's proof that it shortens your length of life. It's going to give you diabetes, cancer, heart disease. And I don't mean to say it's equal to cigarettes, but it's the same concept. Like, we need to move to a place where there's labels on foods and urge companies to say, well, if you're going to use ultra processed ingredients and you're going to make this, there's going to be a big label and a warning sign so that kids, when, oh, families, when they're at the supermarket, they see a big sign that yeah. says, don't choose that one. Yeah. And these that, foods contain obesogens. Yes. And so then they'll say, oh, well, maybe we should make that version without the ultra processed ingredients. And what I teach in the book is that it's not about just avoiding the ultra processed foods, it's also repopulating your gut bacteria with foods that will give you the right signals of happiness of when you're full, of you know, when you should stop eating, when you should be motivated. All of that that all of that can happen with just switching out the ultra processed with a real food. Yeah. Wouldn't that be enlightening? You know, if we did have those labels on foods, on a box of Lucky Charms that says this product contains obesogens, obesity causing agents and creating that honesty. And the same evolution happened with cigarette smoking. People are still going to smoke. Yeah. But there's going to be a shift in public consciousness and awareness, again, potentially. And it's just the right thing to do. It's an ethical thing to do to be able to provide that insight. You mentioned earlier that there's a difference between hunger, cravings and appetite. Yeah. Let's talk about the difference. Okay. So when you're hungry, you get a jolt of ghrelin, uh, which is a hunger hormone. It's cyclical. So when a lot of us, when we brush our teeth in the morning, it's like a signal, a sign to your brain. It's almost like Pavlov's dog. You know, you start to get this little ghrelin boost. And if you get busy, uh, you might just miss it. And it goes back down, then comes back up. So the whole, we think the whole point of ghrelin is to remind us to eat because we can go weeks, if not months without food. We just need water, but our bodies don't want us to do that because it's very stressful. So it reminds us every day to go and get food. So that's hunger, right? And then when we eat, we have stretch receptors in our stomach and there's neuropeptide YY, there's leptin, there's cholecystin, there's like five to seven hormones that we know, hunger hormones including insulin and all the ones that we've heard of that tell us we're full. And that's beautiful, right? Then cravings come in. 
So this is the analogy I give. January 1st, everybody woke up and they had a list. And one of the things on their list was like eating healthy, right? And it's off like you can will yourself say, yeah, I'm going to be so 100% healthy this year. And then all of a sudden, January 4th, 5th, maybe mm -hmm. 7th, the cravings hit, right? We have the best intentions. Yeah. We had, we know, we're willpowering it through. But those cravings override all of that. And so we have to learn that cravings are completely separate from hunger. It's not, I mean, there's overlap. Like, for example, if you diet for a long time, uh, your, uh, your hunger centers will call the craving centers and say like, hey, we need your help now. We, this person needs to eat. So that's why your cravings and appetite are really high when you've dieted on purpose. That's why they don't work for long term because then your hunger hormones are just working extra hard as well as your craving hormones to get you to eat. Cravings is this dopamine pathway. It's a survival mechanism to keep us going for the food that gives us reward. It can happen when you're completely full. Have you ever eaten dinner? You know, Thanksgiving, I give example, it's super full. You have no hunger anywhere in your body or brain, but someone brings out the cheesecake <laughs> and there you go. It's like the craving centers you start to get you start to remember last Thanksgiving or when you were, you know, Thanksgiving when you were five years old and how it was so, it was such a great feeling and your family's all around. And so cravings uses a whole separate pathway. Yeah. They're actually different places in the brain. Yeah. Um, the craving centers and the hunger centers. The craving centers are all the same for food, for alcohol, for, you know, gaming, uh, gambling, all of that stuff. So that is a pathway that is completely separate from hunger. Appetite is kind of the thing where you lose your appetite, right? When you're sick, you kind of lose all of it. And it's almost like an override. We often have lowered appetites when we're inflamed. Some people have higher appetites when we're inflamed. But if you look at dog, I will say when you look at animals, right? They're very obvious. When they're sick, their appetite is way down. Their energy levels are way down. So it's all separate kind of pathways and we use them all interchangeably, right, in our world. My, my biggest thing was, oh my God, these neurological pathways of cravings are completely separate from hunger. And we can do things to actually change them because uh, our brain has neuroplasticity, a neuroplasticity. We can change pathways even if they were formed as a child. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that's the thing too, again, is being aware that this is happening. Thank you for deconstructing those things. You just mentioned these are even different parts of the brain yeah. that are responsible for these things. And when you said cheesecake, I looked over at my son here in the studio and I see this phenomenon. Even last night, we had just finished eating dinner, but there's this little mini culture between my wife and my youngest son. All right. And so after dinner, even though my son is not hungry anymore, that craving, right, kicks on. Different part of the brain says, time for some sweet. Yeah. Right? Not something sweet, some sweet. Yeah. Right? And so we have, quote, healthier mm -hmm. snacks and desserts and things like that. But these two have ganged up together and they, like, they have that kind of some sweet thing after dinner, you know, even though we're not hungry. And of course, again, we could do this stuff and find joy and all the things and do it in a way that is 
healthful and fulfilling. But we have to be mindful of this too, because we can just get stuck on this, this mental loop, right? Our brain is driving us to do this behavior. We, we might not even be aware that we're doing it. Okay, I have a game that you can play with him. Do you want to help him switch his habit, his craving loop? I don't know if I'll be allowed to do that. Okay, so let me just tell you a quick game. Because um, then my wife would have to play, Amy. Yeah, well, no, it, it can be e e for an individual or for She everyone. doesn't want to be alone. Yeah, well, I'll tell you. Suite. Okay, so I'll tell you how to play and you tell me if she'd do it. This happened because one of my, uh, one of the people I coach, I had them read the book in advance because there's some techniques in there that I wanted to use. And she said, I have a different version of your three, two, one technique that's in the, in the book that people who are watching this should try. So she said she's going to put pieces of paper in a jar. So the way dopamine works the best is when you're surprised. When you get a surprise win on the gambling table, that's the biggest burst of dopamine and it forms that neurological pathway that you keep wanting to come back for, right? So when you want to reprogram that to healthy things, make a jar. It, some of them just say, congrats, you're doing great, or some affirmation, right? Have a great day. You're... And then some random ones are your treat. You pick it out and you say, today you get your healthy treat. And he's going to be like, yes, the sweet. I'm so excited. Today's the day. You know, it's going to be random. He's not going to know which day it is, right? And he gets to enjoy the sweet of, you know, his choice that's healthy, like a better version of the old stuff, okay? So it might be an, a beautiful gourmet piece of dark chocolate, or it may be, you know, a homemade, uh, not ultra processed cake, right? So that is retraining your brain to want rewards that are healthy. So now, a couple of years from now, he's going to remember that, oh, remember that game we played and I used to get this reward and it's changed. You just changed his neural pathways. Yeah, I love that. And my thing is making sure that it's a conscious. Yes. You know, it's an awareness that he has that this is the behavior and also with her, but my wife is very rebellious, you know, <laughs> when it comes to this stuff. And so, you She's know, lovely and rebellious. She's perfect. Yeah. Okay, capital, all, everything. Yeah. And, um, but you know, it's just, again, being empowered with these techniques. And for example, However, if you are in a state where there's a food addiction, though, and you pull a note out of that jar and says, have a good day, you might flip that fucking table yeah. over. Yes. All right. So this is also yes. leaning into the importance of eating foods that make you feel fulfilled in the yeah. first place before you can get to that place, which yeah. we'll talk about. And also, even when we have our, you know, our sweet treats and things like that, upgrading the quality. Yeah. Because actually what he had yesterday was a four ingredient ice cream. Love it. That he had. And, um, you know, just making those things available, of course. But if, for example, if processed foods are an issue, it's probably going to be a good idea to not have them around in the household. Yeah. But as you mentioned, you started off the episode talking about we got DoorDash now, we've got, yeah. you know, Uber Eats, all these things. It's, we don't even have to go out and get them. Yeah. You know, we're just kind of surrounded with accessibility. One thing that I thought was so shocking is that 70 years ago, the rates of depression, for example, and same goes for diabetes, by the way, and high blood pressure, the rates of de 
uh, depression was like one in 20, okay? So one in 20 people. That shot up to one in 10 people, okay? Then recently after the pandemic, they did another survey. It looks like four in 10, especially in the young adults, young four in 10 adolescents. The same rise is expected by 2050. By 2050, it's going to be six to seven, maybe even more per 10 people. It's insane. And that's heart disease. Mm. That's, we are the most advanced country in the world, and we're going to have six to seven out of 10 people with all of these diseases. And we're not trying to look at what's going on with this big picture, what's going on with the gut, the brain, what can we be doing differently? I mean, I think the answers are right here. Yeah, you just said it though. That's the illusion though, that we're the most advanced because we, on the surface, we look very evolved and intelligent, but we're still operating like very primitive creatures. Yeah. And, you know, and to say that statement again, this picture of sophistication and innovation, but at the same time, being in the greatest amount of debt, yeah. In history, you yeah. know, like what are we like 40 million, 40 trillion, sorry, yeah. <laughs> respect, 40 trillion dollars in debt. And people don't realize one of the, if not the biggest contributing factor to our debt is our poor state of health. And the question, by the way, let's just throw this out there for people to just mull over who are we in debt to? Yeah. By the way, just think about that for <laughs> a second. Know. But, um, you know, but this goes back to what you're doing is helping us to get well from the inside out. Yeah. Because clearly what we've been doing is not working. And there are structures set up, again, intentional or not, there are structures in place that have us habitually going for things that are making us sick. And so getting back in this conversation of hunger and awareness about our hunger, earlier you said something, it's one of the coolest things about how we're wired up, but also we wanna be aware that this is happening. You mentioned that hunger is cyclical. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that cyclical nature of our hunger and also get into this topic of chrononutrition. Yeah. We are wired to be creatures that are cyclical. We have circadian rhythms, uh, which are 24 hours. We have infradian rhythms, which are like monthly. We have ultradian rhythms, which are short, like heartbeats and ghrelin going up and down. So we're creatures of rhythms because our body needs to know when it should do what to optimize it, right? We need to focus on growth and repair overnight. We need to focus on metabolism and activity during the day. And so our, all of our ultradian, circadian, infradian rhythms are geared for that. So even if you work night shift, even if you're a night owl, even if you're you know, 20 and you stay up all night, you cannot switch those rhythms. Your heartbeat will always beat on a very similar pattern, right? There's obviously variance between people, but it's very cyclical. And breath, you know, is very cyclical. These are all rhythms that no matter what you do, that stays stable. So ghrelin is one of those things. It's cyclical. It's a reminder that we should be eating. And it's a reminder to keep us safe because it doesn't want us to, in a time of war or, you know, you're busy, like in modern times, you're doing podcasts all day. Sean's like, shoot, I forgot to eat. It's been like, you know, 12 hours. Your body wants to remind you that it's time to get nourishment, right? It, that's what ghrelin is created for. 
and there's things that affect it, uh, like sleep, stress, trauma, emotions, all of that stuff, and time. So if you want to switch your ghrelin release, first few days is going to be really, really hard to not eat after dinner because that ghrelin is going at 10 o'clock, right? It's like, oh, I want that. I want that dessert. I want that wine. I want that popcorn with my Netflix, right? But over time, you can train it. So that's why people always say it's so hard to not eat after dinner. They say this whole thing you're talking about, Dr. Shah, like this whole chrono nutrition, oh, don't eat at, at late at night, but I can't, I can't not eat. I'm so hungry. I'm like, just try it. Do it for a week or two and watch. Those ghrelin levels will start to change according to your lifestyle. Yeah. And I love this because you unpack how to essentially reset these hunger and satiety cues. And you just mentioned sleep, for example, like we often, we don't cognitively connect the fact that our sleep is impacting our cravings, yes, right? Or the food choices that we're making. But you also, of course, I'm so happy you did, but you talk about this in the book as well, because, you know, one night of poor sleep can not just cause issues with ghrelin, you know, that kind of hunger hormone, but also suppress the function of leptin. Yeah, leptin is our um, appetite satiation. When you feel full, that's because the leptin has released in your brain. So one of the things I think is really interesting is that sleep is something that really alters your leptin release. And there's multiple other things. Uh, people sometimes when they're stressed mm -hmm. have altered leptin release. Also, obesity. So what we've realized is that it's not okay. Uh, lots of doctors will say to their obese patients, all right, just don't eat as much and you'll lose weight, you know? And that's what we thought that was as easy as that. Yeah. Not taking into account that when you look at the studies, there's altered leptin and ghrelin activity. They will try to willpower their way, but that leptin is not going to keep them satisfied. It's ironic, you know, when you look at the, the, the data on this, because leptin has to do with our fat cells, Yeah. right? Our fat cells are essentially releasing leptin. And if you get into the state of obesity, you've got more fat cell, you know, uh, velocity yeah. happening. So you would think that leptin would just be screaming out and getting produced, and it is, but there's another part of the equation is leptin sensitivity. Right. So just like insulin resistance, which I think most people are familiar with, like you, in the beginning, you pump out insulin and your cells will take that glucose in. Insulin is like the key to let the glucose into the cell. And, but then when the cell is really over full, they're going to close the doors and they're not going to even open it when leptin, you know, when insulin is knocking on the door, it's going to say, well, we're full. So that's what's happening with leptin. The fat cells are releasing so much leptin that they're, the cells are overwhelmed and they're like, we don't need any more, just wait. So we get something called leptin resistance. And that's something that, you know, adds a layer to all the different layers that we have working against us in this path to, you know, a healthy life. I, you know, the thing I want to say, Sean, I think that really struck me to write this book is that I think a lot of people feel like YOLO, which for people who don't know, is like, you only live once, like eat the cookies, have the shake, go to Starbucks every day. It's, you know, YOLO. 
what I really struck me when I was reading the research is that it's not just about you're going to die a year earlier. It's how you're feeling today, how mm. motivated you are, how happy you feel in your relationships. It's, it's about the energy you feel to do the things that you want to do. If you don't have that, what, what else is there, right? Don't do it. If you don't want to do it for, you know, living an extra few years, fine. But think about your mood. Think about your cravings. Think about your energy levels. Like, don't you want those to be optimized? Mm, yeah. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. Neuroplasticity, the ability of the human brain to grow and adapt and evolve and really to unlock our superhuman capacity is driven by our experiences, our practices, our activities, but also our nutrition. Fascinating new research published in the journal Neuron found that magnesium, this key electrolyte is able to restore critical brain plasticity and improve overall cognitive function. Again, neuroplasticity is the ability of our brain to change and adapt. Now this is one key electrolyte, but it works in tandem with other electrolytes like sodium. Sodium is critical for maintaining proper hydration of the human brain. If you didn't know this, the human brain is primarily made of water. We're talking somewhere in the ballpark of 75, upwards of 80% water. It's so important because just a small decrease in our body's optimal hydration level. What's noted in the data, just a 2% decrease in our baseline hydration level can lead to dramatic cognitive decline. Helping to sustain and maintain proper hydration levels in the brain, sodium is critical in that. And also, researchers at McGill University found that sodium functions as a, quote, off-on switch for specific neurotransmitters that support our cognitive function and protect our brains from numerous degenerative diseases. Right now, the number one electrolyte company in the world is delivering a gift for new and returning customers. With each purchase of Element, that's L-M-N-T, the number one electrolyte in the market, no binders, no fillers, no artificial ingredients, no crazy sugar and sweeteners. My friend's son was just over at our house and my son, my oldest son, Jordan, was training them, taking his teammates through some workouts. And we opened the freezer and there's a bottle of Gatorade. There's a bottle of Gatorade in our freezer. And my wife's like, whose is this? Because we know we don't roll like that. We don't mess with the Gators, all right? We don't mess with the Gatorades. And we knew who it was, it was one of his friends. And he came in, he's like, well, at least this is the no sugar kind. And then I go through some of the ingredients with him and I find those curveballs of like, here's where they're sneaking in these artificial ingredients and things that the human body has no association with. But you know, it's he's taking a step in the right direction by, by being in our environment. So you know what I did? I put the element in his hand. All right, make sure that he's got the good stuff, the very best stuff. And also this is backed by peer reviewed data and a huge body of evidence. And we're talking about the folks at Element. That's L-M-N-T. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model and you're going to get a special gift pack with every purchase, whether you're a new or previous customer or Element. So again, this is a brand new opportunity, free gift pack with every purchase over at Element. Go to drinklmnt.com 
Bluechew.com forward slash model. And now back to the show. Tying all this together, you really feature this science around psychobiotics. And yes. this is obviously fascinating, but this is really getting to the heart of how a lot of this stuff is working. If people understood the concept even around psychobiotics, it would change how you live and it would change the things you eat. Because what we found out is that your entire mental state can be located in your gut. It's, it's so wild, but I'll, I'll tell you this. You can transplant the gut bacteria, just the gut, nothing about the brain or the chemicals or whatever, from one animal to another and completely change their mental state from depressed to non-depressed. You can transplant gut bacteria from a depressed person into a non-depressed animal and the animal becomes depressed. They did that with schizophrenia. Schizophrenia has an effect on the microbiome like depression, like anxiety, like autism, where if you just transplant the gut bacteria, you actually change the entire mental state. You take that gut bacteria of, from the schizophrenic patient and you put it into an animal, a germ-free animal, meaning that they don't have a microbiome of their own. And that animal starts to develop traits of schizophrenia. I mean, the fact of this is going to blow the mental health industry and the way we think about mental health yeah. are open because psychobiotics is basically saying there's a group of bacteria that work with your own bacteria to completely change how you feel and think on a daily basis. I mean, that to me is mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. You just said it. There's so much data on this now. And even fecal transplants with humans changing the person's kind of um, mental state or their perception of things, not just their state of health and kind of fixing things they didn't even know were wrong or trying to fix, but also just changing their disposition by changing what's happening with their gut bacteria. What I find fascinating is that in a landmark study in nature, they found that it takes just three days to start to markedly change your microbiome. So say we don't want to get a fecal transplant right now. It's illegal in the US. You know, it's not FDA approved even. It's just for a very small, tiny subset of patients who have Clostridium difficile. If you say, well, what's another way to change my microbiome? I'll tell you, it's rapidly changing your diet. Three days is all it takes to actually change the entire environment. These microbes, their half-life is very, very short. And so you can really start to see changes right away. So what are psychobiotics specifically? They're bacteria. They're bacteria that change your mental state, not through your brain, not through a pill, but they go into your gut and they work with your microbes in your gut and they send the signals to the brain. And so what we're trying to figure out is, whoa, okay, this is happening, but what bacteria, which ones, who should we use this on? You know, this whole world is exploding. Of course, the you know, pharmaceutical industry wants to get in on this. They want to create the right cocktail to make you happier, to, you know, obviously good things, cure depression, um, dementia, Alzheimer's. We know that there's, in the models, you can cure all of that. So there is potential there. So, so far what they found is when they supplement psychobiotics with medications, they work in conjunction. So if you're taking an SSRI, so a common, you know, citalopram, Celexa, or a medication for depression, 
and you take a cocktail of psychobiotics, your medication will work better. What they're trying to figure out is what is the concoction of bacteria that we don't even need the medication anymore? And we're still trying to figure out, is it the same for everyone? Does it depend on your baseline microbiome? Probably it depends on how healthy your microbiome is in general, because we know that the better diversity you have in your microbiome, the more dopamine and serotonin and good feeling chemicals you get. So it depends on your baseline too. So maybe we just build up these people's, anyone who wants to change their mental state, maybe you start by just building up that diversity and that level of bacteria in your gut and see what happens. Yeah. A lot of folks have heard this statement, especially if they've been in the health space and kind of investing in, in this education, that the majority of our serotonin is located in our gut, yeah. right? But going back to, it's been almost 10 years ago when I created the first iteration of my first book, Sleep Smarter, and I talked about some research from Caltech, yeah. And the researchers were denoting that there were certain bacteria in the gut that were communicating with the cells that are making serotonin yeah. and other sleep-related hormones because serotonin is a precursor for melatonin. Yeah. And I was just trying to deconstruct that thought process. And at the time, these bacteria didn't have a label necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. And so psychobi these are psychobiotics. Yeah, they're psychobiotics. In their truest form. And again, if we're not taking care and creating an environment where these bacteria are able to be there in the first place to be prevalent and to be able to do their jobs. No, it's no wonder we're gonna have issues with serotonin production, sleep problems and the like. And so this really boils down a big part of your mission is helping folks to get their gut healthy. Yeah, it, I mean, if you think about, this is the, the macro level transgenerational epigenetics. This means that say you grew up in an industrialized way with Uber Eats and with packaged foods and with maybe you had a C-section, maybe, you know, there's multiple things that happen in early life that change your microbiome. They, it can be, until adulthood, they can tell the difference between your childhood and someone who had a more, we can talk about farm-like, you know, natural childhood, right? Then it's passed down to your children and then to generations, and then some of those bacteria are lost forever. And so you look four generations down and they don't even have the same bacteria. Like we don't have the same bacteria that our forefathers, like three, four generations do. We're 40% less diverse than our generations of, uh, before us. And so what I, I keep feeling in my mind is like, it's not just about us, you know, we're going down this path if we don't take action now, and it's easy action, like simple things like build up your gut. I mean, we're literally headed for you know depression and disease. Yeah. So is this part of the equation of how our food choices are contagious? Yeah. Our cravings are contagious? Our food choices, our cravings are contagious. So I think you probably know the um, and when I was in uh, nutrition school, we talked about how obesity can is considered a familial, you know, household or contagious phenomenon. So you're 57 percent more likely to be obese when your family is obese. So people used to blame the kids, like, oh, just you know, it's it's 
you need to change how you eat or whatever. And you look at their family structure and the mom, the dad, the sister, the grandparents are all obese. And so what we're realizing now that we didn't know what the reason was, what is it just, you know, the healthy practices, you know, obviously some of it is access to food. Some of it is cultural. Now we realize that a lot of it is because of bacterial microbiome. One of the great issues of our time is instead of understanding what's happening biochemically, right, and culturally, the, the big villainization really of our genes has taken place in recent history and, and blaming our genes, pointing at the genes, you know, we do, and even the, the search for genes, like they're yeah. we're searching, we finally found this fat gene, it's yeah, the FPO yeah. gene, this yeah. is the issue. But then seeing plenty of folks who have this particular gene and it's not, it's not being read in a particular way. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not being activated, mm-hmm. right? And this speaks to where we are today, which is the science of epigenetics and how our choices, our environment, even our thoughts affect our genetic expression. Yeah. And so because we have certain genes that are associated with things, by the way, if we actually map this out and we see very clearly that there are very few genes that are causative of anything, they're associated with stuff, but to have a true genetic defect, we're talking about less than 1%, upwards of 5% of the population, that's it. But really some of the best data is less than 1%. And so looking at where we have power and also the influence and, and support with our children, but also our greater community. Unfortunately, today, what we're doing is you're sharing this wonderful information about how to reset and optimize our hunger and satiety hormones, take back control of our biology. And yet pharmaceutical companies and now the medical paradigm is championing more drugs to try to target these hormones, right? And we know how this is going to play out. Right now we have Mojorno, we have Ozempic, are all the talk of the town, these, quote, miracle cures for obesity. They're being framed like that. And in truth, as soon as I looked at them, I'm like, oh, these are GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide-1 targets. This is a satiety hormone, slowing down digestion, making you feel fuller. And then I went immediately, looked at uh, a reference that chlorophyll does the same thing without the potential side effects. So let's talk about this because We've seen different stuff come and go, and now we've got this new miracle drug to try to target what you're trying to fix in people from an ethical place. Let's spot treat, or in a way, using a blunt instrument yeah. to try to change people's metabolism. Yeah, I love this topic because it's so nuanced. Okay, so let's take obesity medicine. So there are people who have struggled for their entire life and have tried everything. Uh, and these medications actually really help them because their blood sugar is better controlled. They're feeling more satisfied. Okay, so that's one group. Then we have a group of normal weight, non-diabetic patients who are taking it for, I would call it casual weight loss. It's not medical weight loss. It's not- um, Cosmetic. Cosmetic, yes. And the problem with that is exactly how, like the- concept is, is that we have been taught in Western medicine that there's something that will save you from the work. Now, there's a pill, there's a solution, there's a savior. It's like that old analogy of like someone coming on a white horse and saving you from your distress, right? That's the medical model, like antibiotics, you know, the solution, we'll, we'll get rid of your problem, right? So it just feeds into that 
story of, hey, I have something that's going to take away the work, the hard work for you. And that's what I don't like about it, because it's a great solution for a small, a big population and a terrible solution for another group. And it's like you said, GLP-1 agonists are naturally occurring in foods. There are foods that are GLP-1 agonists. I mean, if we ate the food that makes makes us feel full and i talk about a very wide variety of foods that can help you with these satiety hormones we would not have the side effects we would not have to pay hundreds of dollars a month we would not have a a a solution that causes all kinds of side effects right any medication that does something has you know multitude of side effects that we'll find out a few years from now and instead if you Our biology is so smart that food has the same effects without the negative side effects. But why eat those foods when we can eat Intamins and take Ozempic? Right. You know what I mean? That's the thing. And, you know, again, if we're being honest about this, when you said, you know, right now here in the United States, approximately 70, 75% of our population is overweight or obese. It's a it's a big struggle that we're dealing with as a society, but this is not normal. This has only happened in the last few decades. The solution is not something to spot treat because yeah. this is the problem. Again, we're trying to target one thing. We have this brilliant cascade of hunger and satiety mechanisms within our bodies. This blunt instrument, again, it might work for a little while. And you yeah. said this earlier when, when we had, obviously we want these things to be available in moments when it's truly dangerous and we can save lives that whole thing absolutely but when we say people have tried everything they probably haven't tried your program right right so we got to be careful with that because the truth is we have a culture that is breeding sickness and the reality is we want to do things that are truly holistic and stacking conditions in your favor doing things to support all your hunger and satiety hormones all of your your psychobiotics these things are being ignored when we come in with this blunt instrument, and again, like you said, in the next few years, probably just based on our historical use of these types of things, we're going to see a fallout, you know, a biomechanical fallout. Your body is so intelligent. It's going to find a way, if you're doing the thing that caused the obesity, it's going to find a way to get back to that kind of set point that it's been cultivated for. I, that's the thing. If, if you want to be fuller and fitter and happier, then you have to go this route. You have to, you know, change your gut bacteria, change how you exercise, get sunlight, a few very simple tools, but really change your gut microbiome. If you go the other route, you will stay addicted. You'll stay sad. You will stay sick, but you'll just be like a thinner version of yourself. And so for I think- For at least a while. For, for a short period of time. And so I think we need to move away from this model in medicine and diet, you know, diet culture, which is take this and it will save you from the work. And because every time in life, in whether in diet or otherwise, whenever you take that option, it always makes it longer, harder, and- more difficult to get to your goal in the, in, in the end. This is a good place to talk about enjoyment because another thing that's really tied to our struggles is the 
belief that it is joyless, that it is mm. a struggle, that mm. you know this is something that's even not reserved for somebody like me. You know, yeah. I don't have the willpower. All these things. Can this process of eating well and feeling good? Can this be joyous? Yeah, well? I talk about this all in the book. I said it's not about willpower because if you rely on willpower, your January first goals will all be met by now, right? It's it's not about willpower. Uh, our biology overrides even our strongest willpower. Like we can will ourselves to do things, but it's very, very difficult. And so we have to create an environment that makes it easy for us to get this way. I, I just think that, you know, it's not about a diet. It's not about willing yourself. It's about changing the environment inside of you so that you're happier, you're more satisfied, you can be less inflamed. So you think clearer, you live longer. It's possible, but it's going to have to come from the inside. Yeah. And leaning into the joy part a little bit more. Yeah. What about, can we find joy in real food? Yeah. Uh, sunshine. Okay. Going for a sunny walk, eating certain foods that boost your dopamine and serotonin. So I talk about in the book, that there are foods that are actually precursors to dopamine, our feel-good motivational hormone, and serotonin, our feel-good hormone that we can eat that actually bring us joy. Let's talk about some of yeah, those. Yeah, some of them are obvious. You know, dark chocolate, cacao brings us joy. Tea, coffee boosts our dopamine receptors in our brain. Things like berries and cherries in particular are dopamine boosters, right? Interestingly, high-protein foods are dopamine boosters. Makes sense because dopamine at its core, if we're talking about hormones, they're made from proteins. Yes. So tyrosine is a precursor to dopamine. Just like you said, serotonin has precursor also and it then can turn into melatonin. So what I tell people is eat the joyous dopamine foods in the morning to get joy, clarity, and motivation focus, and then eat the serotonin foods in the evening so that you can get some relaxation and help you sleep at night. So if you wanted to compare dopamine and serotonin, for those who don't know, think of dopamine as the motivation, morning, active, almost like an adrenaline-like hormone. Whereas serotonin is your blissed out, chill, relaxed. So if you were really trying to optimize this, then, and you want to joy at the right times, then you would eat the high protein breakfast. Maybe you sprinkle some berries and nuts on it. Maybe you have your coffee and, you know, some dark chocolate at some point in the morning. And then in the evening, you have some foods that have serotonin. And there's, you know, the classic foods that have serotonin are those rich in tryptophan. So heavy on the tryptophan. So we think about turkey, but there's many things like high, any kind of high protein um, meats, tofu, beans, but you mix that with a complex carbohydrate mm -hmm. to let it cross, help cross the blood brain barrier. And that helps you really relax for the evening. And so what I found is that if you kind of have the dopamine rich foods in the morning, the serotonin rich foods in the evening, you feel happier, it's healthier, it's actually enjoyable, right? I, I don't know about you, but I think that there is 
a misnomer that unless you're going to Starbucks and a processed drive through that your life sucks. And that's just not true. If you look at the biology, the foods that actually make you happy are not the foods that you think are going to make you happy. Yeah. This reminds me of some of the work from Dr. Robert Lustig. Yeah. And he talks about the difference with, you know, uh, pleasure and yeah. happiness, Yes, you know, and that's the, that's the kind of mental distinction. And you, throughout the book, you're really structuring things in such a way to help us to create that. And so we've got some nutrition advice here you just shared, which obviously there's much more in the book. We've got several times you've noted the importance of getting high quality sleep. Is there anything else that folks should know about so that they can take advantage of you know the title of the book to not yeah. be so effing hungry? <laughs> I think one of the easiest non-food things you can do because we talk about replacing your diet with you know with six different food categories we talk about you know how you can have these little hacks in between to help you through for example walnuts walnuts have been shown to actually increase your satiety hormones um, and so we, you know we have little hacks in there to say hey i know it's hard work but here are little things that you can do one thing you can do that is non-food is getting sunlight and we know about circadian rhythms. It helps you be, uh, you know, become less tired. It helps your sleep the next night, but it also helps your satiety. And, you know, we used to wonder why, you know, when you go on vacation, have you ever noticed you're just not craving as much? You're not hungry for the same bad foods. You know, you're feeling a little Depends happier. on what vacation yeah, well, you're going yes, on. Exactly. But <laughs> usually sunlight has, um, people intuitively know that it makes them feel better, not as Fiending for you crave cravings. different things, or yeah. you have you have hunger for for different things. Right. So sunlight releases a hormone in your brain called alpha MSH, which is shown to actually help in satiation. And so getting some, especially in the morning, getting some morning sunlight could be an easy way for you to start stacking, you know, these habits to improve the things you crave, to improve your, then your sleep and your mood and your energy levels all in one action. Yeah. And it just makes sense biologically, you know, just looking at human evolution, that sun, sunlight is a cue, yeah. right? Versus, you know, hiding out from the sun, we are, might be in a place, you know, our biology is telling us we might be under threat. Yeah. We might be in times where, you know, there isn't access to sunlight. So we're, you know, maybe it's a habitual winter, you know, a yeah. long winter. We need to stockpile the calories in our bodies. Yes. All of these things, again, it's getting us to realize that we are part of this. We're part of nature. And I'm so grateful for you because you talk about circadian rhythms and circadian nutrition and really getting us to think about being more in alignment with the world around us. And so if you could, can you share where people can pick up your amazing new book yeah. and also where they can hang out with you online? So first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm like so grateful. I love your show as I, and you bring, you bring so much awareness to the real topics that we need to be aware of today. So the book is called I'm So Effing Hungry. It's available everywhere books are sold. I have a website at amymdwellness.com. And if you do amymdwellness.com forward slash book, you can get all the links to the book, to the bonuses. We have a chapter that's never been published 
uh, that we're giving people so that they can get started right away, even while they're waiting for their book to arrive or, you know, want some extra things to do right away, action steps. And the action steps are really cool. Some of the things in the book that I think feed into our need for immediate gratification. Like, I don't know if you saw this part, but there's a part about uh, sniffing like uh, the the scent of mint, okay, natural mint, mm-hmm. not the menthol, you know, not the toothpaste mint, but like mm-hmm. the actual is a way that you can kind of immediately start to get some of the benefits of the satiation hormones. People who sniffed the essential oil, peppermint oil, felt more satisfied, less cravings, less hunger. And so I want to just empower people with, it's not about diet per se. It's not about like Ozempic. Like we don't want, we. there's no point in just losing that last five pounds. The point is live a life where you are metabolically healthy, where you are happy, where you are satisfied and not just having food in your thoughts all the time. And a place where you know, we're moving in that right direction instead of the abysmal direction we're moving right now. You're one of my favorite people in this Aww. space. So thank you so much for coming to hang out with us and sharing your wisdom. It is so important. And again, everybody run out and get a copy <sighs> of So Effing Hungry. Let's make this a huge bestseller. Such an important conversation. And again, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks so much for of having course. me. Of course. My pleasure. Dr. Amy Shaw, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. A new term has been pushed into popular wellness culture, psychobiotics, and really understanding how much our gut health and our microbiome is affecting our emotional wellness, our mental health, and so much more. Everything is truly interconnected, and we're just scratching the surface on understanding how all this stuff works. So this is why it's so important to stay up to date. With this information, make sure that you're subscribed to the Model Health Show. Pop over to YouTube and subscribe there as well. We're going to be sharing exclusive content for you over on YouTube. And of course, you can hang out in the studio with us, hang out with Dr. Amy Shaw. And as always, sharing is caring. So make sure to share this out with the people that you care about. You can share this on social media. Take a screenshot of the episode. You can tag me. I'm at Sean Model. Tag Dr. Amy Shaw. She's at FastingMD and share the love that way. Or of course, you can send this directly from the podcast app that you are listening on. I appreciate you so much for tuning into the show. We've got some epic shows coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care. Have an amazing day. I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.